passage. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Thank the Lord for his word. Will you pray with me, please? Father, as we come to you because of the blood of Christ, we confess exactly what we just sang. You are all we need. The world that we live in wants to tell us there are many, many other things that we need. We stretch out this word need so much that it becomes something completely different than its original intention. Lord, would you show us this morning that if there are some things that we have brought with us into worship that we ought not to have, if we have brought our own sense of righteousness on our own works, our own intelligence, our own charm, our own accomplishments, Lord, if we've brought in some sense of worldliness that, that wraps us up in, in this idea that we are just trying to move to the next thing, and we only come to the thing that we're at right now so that we can get to the next thing. Would you help us to slow down? Would you let these words that we just read sink deep into our hearts that we might know you more, that we might deal with the sin in our lives that's been paid for by Christ? We thank you. You've given us your spirit to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment but also to comfort us with the salvation we have in Christ. Would you do that today for us? And would you see to it that you would be glorified as we consider your son? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, our title this morning is Consumed with Zeal. And hopefully you saw that in the passage that we just read. Um, it's a quote from Psalm 69 that was read at the beginning of our service. And it is what comes to the mind of the disciples as Jesus cleans out the temple. It's pretty radical, pretty aggressive behavior for Jesus, gentle and lowly, meek and mild, isn't it? It's not something we might have expected where we just came from. We, we came from looking at Jesus going to a simple, poor wedding in Cana. We see his great generosity and the abundant joy and kindness of the kingdom that he's inaugurating. And then... Passover comes, and he goes up to the temple, and he finds a serious issue 
with the way they're worshiping. So I want to ask you this morning, what did you bring with you to worship today? This is the part where if you grew up in Sunday school, you would automatically raise your Bibles and say, I did it. I did the right thing. I brought my Bible, right? You might say, well, I didn't bring anything. I didn't know I was supposed to. Was I supposed to bring a sacrifice? Oh, no, was I supposed to bring an offering? Was there supposed to be something that I missed from last week or, or something that I just missed from Christianity that I haven't known before? The truth is, is that we do come in with a lot when we come to worship, don't we? We come with a lot on our minds, a lot on our hearts. Some of us come in with the pressure that our life could change dramatically in the next five minutes. Some of us may come with perfect peace as far as we understand. We may come with just simple anticipation and excitement to enter into the house of the Lord with God's people and to lift up the name of Jesus. I wish I could say that was my normal Sunday pattern. I know it's in there, but I also know it's crowded out by a lot of other cares, a lot of other concerns, and a lot of other preferences that I make for myself. Well, as you're thinking about that and looking at this text, we have the setting very clear. This is not just another ordinary day in the temple. What big festival is going on? What big holiday? Did you notice that in verse 13? It was the Passover. This was like Christmas, okay? This, there was no Christmas yet. You know that, right? But this was the high point of the Jewish calendar, Passover. And you remember Passover, right? You remember the plagues in Egypt, God freeing his people out of slavery, bringing them into the wilderness, you know, wanting to bring them into the promised land. But the Passover being that night that the last plague was going to hit Egypt. And that a dramatic change happened in the Passover, didn't it? Because every other plague that hit Egypt didn't hit Goshen where the Israelites were living. Did you notice that? But when God gives instruction to Moses about what will happen when the angel of death goes door to door that night and takes the life of the firstborn of every household, he actually says, you also need to be prepared for this. And I'm going to give you a way of being prepared for this. So we, we see Passover as this, in one sense, terrifying event. But we also see in that judgment that God gives to Egypt after Pharaoh repeatedly hardens his heart and says, no, I won't let them go. I won't let them go. I won't let them go. And God brings judgment on him. We also see this great mercy placed on his own people. Cover the doorposts and the doors with the blood of a lamb, and you will be saved. This is the history lesson of Israel. The thing that every good child growing up in a Jewish household would know about what their ancestors had been through. The Passover, the Exodus, the wandering for 40 years. This whole story would have been very familiar to them. And as the normal pattern of life would, would bring them to, Jesus also joins with the rest of his Jewish brothers to go celebrate Passover. And he comes to the temple. And coming to the temple, he's not alone. He's coming with thousands of other people who are coming to the temple. And they're coming with their most worshipful attitudes all year long, supposedly, right? Can we really know if somebody is worshiping well on a Sunday morning? Is there a sign? 
Is there a look on a face? Is there a word that might be said? Is there an action falling on our knees, lifting our hands? Is there some physical evidence that I could know about right now to know that you're even really paying attention and interested in what the Bible has to say today? Not really, is there? I mean, you could smile. That wouldn't mean that you care for what God's word has to say. You could fall asleep. That also doesn't necessarily mean that you don't care about what God's word has to say. We cannot tell from the outside what's going on when we consider people worshiping, can we? And just as God told Samuel when he sent him to find the future king, David, we look at the outside. Man looks at the heart. Sorry, God looks at the heart. God is able to see at the seat of our hearts, at the, the most transparent that we are, he is able to see where we are spiritually in worship right now. No pressure. It's kind of a lot of pressure, isn't it? Well, our call from this passage today is going to be summed up this way. That Christ, who is the true temple, the true place of meeting between God and humanity calls us to come to him to submit ourselves in pure and zealous worship because of his sacrifice. It might sound like a lot to get out of this passage, but hopefully it will make sense. Well, there's a couple elements that are going on in worship in this setting of Passover. We already mentioned the holiday that's happening, but we also ought to mention the fact that pilgrimage is happening as well. That because of the history of Israel, there's a point where Israel is scattered um, Israel, the, the Jews in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and you can read all about that in the Old Testament. And then uh, the, the exile that happens that sends God's people all over the world. Passover would have been one of those points that they said, hey, I'm going to make it back to Jerusalem this year and celebrate Passover there at God's house at the temple. So a pilgrimage is going on for a lot of people. And it actually becomes a picture of our need to approach God as the sovereign king of all as the one who is worthy of our praise. You know, they could go to a synagogue and worship. They knew very well that God was present with them wherever they were, but they also knew that there was something special about the divine power of God in the temple. That There was something different about that. And in pilgrimage, they found a way to act out their need to come to God to offer a sacrifice of worship. And where did they go? The temple. It was the place for worship. God's meeting place with his people. Again, they knew that God was omnipresent. They knew that he was everywhere all the time. And they knew that it was important to understand that. It was something that they should have learned throughout their history as they were taken from place to place. But there was something special about the glorious dwelling of God on earth. They knew the importance of being where God was. They also knew the power of God being wherever they were. And that whole reality is happening as they approach the temple. And what are they bringing? They're bringing a sacrifice. Everyone was called to bring a sacrifice. And you, you probably saw that in the text as we read it, that sheep and pigeons, oxen, animals were being sold in the temple for what purpose? To be sacrificed, right? It made sense. It was something they needed, something they needed for worship. It wasn't a bad thing to buy a goat or a bull or a bird or an ox or any of those things. If you're going to give it to the Lord for worship, that's a good thing. That's what he called, you, called them to do in the Old Testament. 
So why does Jesus seem to be so upset about this? Well, as, it, as we consider why, again, this sale was going on in the temple, we have to ask ourselves if we understand that this was, a, was in, their, in the minds of the people doing it, it was very understandable to, to sell goats and sheep and oxen at the place of the temple because people couldn't bring them with them. Sometimes they were traveling for days or weeks to get to Jerusalem for Passover, and managing a sacrifice along the way would have been a great burden. So it's a reasonable service that they're doing to provide these sacrifices for sale as they come to worship. So look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers, that would just be the people who were transferring different types of currency from wherever people were coming. They were making sure that they could pay the temple tax and so they could buy the sacrifice if they needed it. So he found them sitting there in verse 15, making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. What we see Christ doing is purifying the temple. There was a corruption. There was something wrong about this. And on the surface, as people were probably watching him knock over the tables and shoo all the animals out and tell the money changers to get out and to go somewhere else, people might have been wondering, what's so wrong about this? Jesus, don't you understand why we are setting up these tables and selling the things that we're selling and, and providing a service for people who want to come and worship the one who you will call your father in just a verse? Does Jesus just misunderstand? Is this just not according to his preference? Of course, there's something going on deeper here. Jesus is the purifier of the temple. And in verse 14 that we just read, it says that when he came, he found these things. He found those who were doing these kinds of things. And it presents a really interesting question for us if we consider what Jesus would find if he came to worship with us today. In fact, he is with us today, praise God. However, if we ask ourselves, what would Jesus find in my act of worship, I wonder what we would come up with. I wonder if there would be things that we hide even towards ourselves, things that we can't tell on each other's faces or by our actions or even by our words, but then things that are even deeper than what we hide from others, things that we might hide away and lock away from ourselves and ignore and act like everything's okay. Jesus did not walk into the temple surprised by anything that he found, and there was nothing that escaped his sight as he was there. Clearly, he was disappointed about how things were going. Our problem when it comes to worship is that our hearts are naturally, because of our sinful nature, because we are fallen, separate from God, apart from Christ, because we, even we who are in Christ, are still struggling with that old nature that exists within us, along with the new man, constantly fighting a battle, our struggle in worship is that we have a natural inclination to want to be entertained when we come somewhere and sit down. Right? We want to find our own preferences. We want to find our own conveniences. We're inclined to our preference and our convenience and to what we might gain from something, and that perfectly contradicts 
the authority of Christ. And the result is corrupted worship. It's a really tough thing to tackle in our minds because we do this every Sunday, don't we? And again, we know that Paul calls us in Romans to offer up our lives as living sacrifices, which is our reasonable service of worship. That worship is not just the hour and change that you spend in a building hearing a sermon, singing songs, and, sing, and, and praying prayers, and meeting with other people. That's not all of worship, but it certainly kind of functions as the high point of worship, doesn't it? It should in our minds. The opportunity to gather together with other believers to no longer, you know, as, as we spend much of our weeks in our, in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods, often being perhaps some of the only Christians in our neighborhood or in our workplace, it should be a joy for us to gather together and lift up the name of Jesus without fear of people even looking at us funny. I don't know, maybe that still happens in church sometimes, but Sunday morning perhaps is the best place for us to examine our hearts in worship. Because not only are we doing really what you could do any other time of the week in some way, shape, or form, right? You can get online and listen to a sermon. You can play music and sing along. You can pray with brothers and sisters in Christ. But when we come together here, we also have to deal with the fact that we are all perhaps at the very least tempted to put on a show of some kind. To act like everything's okay when things are not okay to withdraw from other people, to set our attention somewhere else other than what God actually has for us here today. It's a real temptation. Again, we ended last week considering the generosity of Christ. And now here this week, we are seeing him turning over the temple tables and and doing something that, you know, our, our snowflake culture might just look at and go, man, that was really mean. I'm not calling anybody a snowflake. I just knew that would be a, a good keyword to use. But in truth, as we're following the narrative here, especially because there's even question about, did this happen in this timeline? Or was this a later cleansing of the temple? Were there two cleansing of the temple? There's a lot of questions about that. But even just the flow of what John's doing, you see his kindness and his, the, the declaration of who he is and, and his calling his disciples and the wedding in Cana, changing the water to wine and, and saving a, a family from social ruin. And then he has to cleanse the temple. Does this contradict the kindness of Christ in some way? Does it contradict our view of Christ? Our comfort with him? To imagine that he might come in here on a Sunday morning if we were in that setting and turn over some of our tables? We're not selling anything. Does that mean we're okay? Or are there tables in our hearts, in a sense, set up for our own profit, for our own convenience, for our own preference? It's very easy for us to perhaps come to God's word or to sit in a sermon setting and consider what we're hearing and sift out the things we don't like and focus on the things that we do. It's also very easy for us to just kind of say, I don't even like the book of John. I'd rather sit and listen and read the book of Psalms while, while this guy's talking about whatever he's talking about and just completely tune it out entirely. There might have been something that I've already said or something I've said in the past or, or something you don't like about my bow tie or my haircut or something that just make you, make you, might, makes you might think like, ah, I'll just, I hope this is over soon. 
And that's okay. Because God's word is greater than anything any of us can put together to try to explain it. God is able to convict us at the place of our hearts and turn those tables over in his mercy so that we might embrace pure worship. So Jesus says in 16, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. A house of trade. A house that is meant for worship turned into a house of trade, of exchange, a marketplace. I mean, really, in one sense, we can change that word trade to anything else that we might come to worship wanting to accomplish that's not, in fact, worship. For instance, easing our consciences before God, thinking that if I come to church on Sunday and I sing the songs and I wave and I say hello and I smile or do whatever those things are, I can know God's at least a little bit happier with me than he was yesterday. That would be a matter of our own profit, of our own convenience, of our own preference. I'm using these words because this is why these tables were set up. There was a convenience factor. Hey, I'm not going to bring the, the goat with me. I'm gonna, I'll just pick one up on, the way, on my way into the temple, right? It's, it's convenient. Or, or preference. You know, I really hate traveling with animals. I'm not going to do that. I'll, I prefer to wait until I get into the city, and then I'll make something happen here. And then profit. You know that the priests and others in the temple were profiting off of setting up those tables. You might imagine that they might say, hey, it's 20 bucks to set up a table and sell all your, all your things or, or whatever it might be. There was, there was some profit going on there as well. Profit, preference, and convenience. Things that really crowd out our worship because we might even come with, with those things in mind and say, like, I, I don't want to have anything to do with a focus on convenience or preference or profit. They could still be there if we don't actually deal with them. If we don't actually take time. I don't know if you do this, and I know that I do not do it well. But do you ever take time on Sunday morning? Because I know you have a lot of it, right? Getting the kids ready, wondering if there's gas in the car, trying to pick a bow tie, whatever it might be. Do you ever take even a moment and just stop and say, am I ready for worship? Is there something that I'm looking for, looking to get out of Sunday morning that's not actually what God has for me? Am I looking for affirmation or applause or, or agreement or, or, or something other than what God has created worship to be? A, a, a time of meeting with him, of offering our sacrifice of worship, of giving him the praise that's due his name. That's what Christ wants us to be doing as we come to worship. That's why he made a whip of cords. Christ, the Lion of Judah, putting together a whip of cords to drive out all these distractions. But you notice, maybe you did, I don't know, I, this thought popped into my head yesterday. It was probably easier to make a whip of cords than any other kind of weapon or, or tool to drive those things out. But, but think about what a whip is. It sounds really harsh, but it's not a sword. You know? He didn't just say, wow, you guys have really corrupted worship. Nothing about this is right. I'm done with all of you. He wouldn't have been wrong to do so, except for the fact that his father had sent him on mission to purify their worship. And that's what this verse 16 is, a call for pure worship. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is from, again, Psalm 69, verse 9 that Trent read this morning for us. And there are two things from that verse. First of all, this zeal for your house. Christ came not to do his own will, but the will of he who sent him, his Father in heaven. Zeal is actually the same word in the Old Testament that's used to describe jealousy. We're like, whoa, well, Jesus can't be jealous. That's not good. I know I'm not supposed to be jealous. You should do a word study of jealousy sometimes and see that you should... You will find that God actually describes himself as a jealous God. That worship is meant to be wholeheartedly his. And jealousy is not sinful for God because when he is jealous, he is jealous for the things that are duly his. And in no way does his jealousy take something away from us. But he invites us in his jealousy, his zeal for true, pure worship. He invites us to embrace what we were created to do in the first place. Zeal for your house will consume me. Christ was actually experiencing reproach from people in his ministry because of his zeal for his father's house. That's the rest of verse, uh, of verse 9 in Psalm 69. It says, the people have reproached me. The reproaches against God have fallen on me because he has zeal for the house of God, the psalmist says, and Christ fulfills this. Shows us that the one who allies himself with God receives the same treatment from people that those people give to God as well. And so reproach is what happens. We know this because our other mentionings of the temple cleansing in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke end up with further progress to Jesus' arrest and his eventual execution. People did not like what he was doing, even though most of them probably agreed that he was right. So what crowds your worship today? Is it convenience? Is it preference? Is it profit? What is it that Christ has to remove from your heart so that you can have that pure worship? And are you willing to accept that, to embrace the work that he wants to do in your heart so that your worship can be pure before him? Because if we if we have these things in our heart, these other idols, these other things that we give preference to before the Lord, our worship will be crowded. It will be impure. It will be corrupted. It will not be as God designed it to be. Look, even at the setting of this, we find in the other Gospels that this place where the tables were set up was the court of the Gentiles. It was the only place where anybody who was not Jewish was allowed to come in and worship. And they took up all that space. In another place, when Jesus cleanses the temple, he says, is it not written, my father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations? And you've made it a den of robbers. See, when, we, when our worship is not pure before him, the natural result will not only be an issue with our relationship with God, but it will also be an issue with our mission that he's given us. If the court of the Gentiles is full with everything but Gentiles, then we're not doing what God has called us to do. If our worship is impure, then we cannot rightly invite other people into it who don't know Christ. How can we fix this? How can we embrace pure worship? A lot of times we might think, okay, well, I, again, I need to go back to this exterior and try to show something. You know, for that last song, my hands are going to be up the whole time. Or I'm going to fall on my knees. Or 
I'm going to sing at the top of my lungs whether people like it or not. Or I'm going to go do X, Y, Z. What is your natural inclination when you think, okay, I want pure worship. Uh, how can I prove to everyone around me that that's what I'm doing? And when we ask ourselves that question, we miss the point entirely. Our temptation is to run to things like emotionalism or spiritualism to show some kind of great signs that we are on fire in worship and that people should be very impressed with what we're doing. But those signs don't necessarily prove that our worship is pure. John 4.24, Jesus is going to deal with worship again. Um, He's going to talk to the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, we'll look at that. But he says in chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. True zeal for God's house, which, by the way, this is not. We're thankful for this building, but the temple doesn't exist as a physical structure any longer. We'll talk about what the temple is in a second here. But true zeal for worship will not conflict with truth. And it will become a matter of self-examination inward to look at those matters of convenience, preference, profit, those things that we put in and that crowd out our worship that Christ wants to deal with, but sometimes we don't want to give up. Christ shows us in cleansing the temple that the issue is always going to be an interior issue. Both things that are unknown to us and things that we've hidden. And the wonder in all of this is that Christ who turns these tables over, who drives out the money changers, and who does all these things is not doing that in order to stop people from worshiping. But he's actually doing it to enable real worship. And so if he is doing this in your heart, he is not doing it with a desire to utterly destroy you, to make you the sacrificial lamb upon his altar of worship, but rather for him to become the sacrificial lamb for you in your place, to create the opportunity for pure worship. He went to the cross. He bore our sin on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might be brought back into right relationship with God. He had to knock the tables over. He had to drive out the sacrifices. He had to do all of this in order to make that happen. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? We get the message. Don't make my father's house a house of trade. What authority do you have? Who do you think you are? What sign do you show us? It's interesting that he says that the Jews say, what sign do you show us? Because really he's given the sign already, hasn't he? And no one could argue with it. And they don't bring an argument. They don't say, well, actually, you know, we need... They don't have that whole conversation to justify why the tables were set up where they were set up, doing what they were doing. They recognize the truth in what Jesus has done, but they still want to try to find a way out of it. If he can't prove his authority, we don't have to listen to him. What sign do you give? The sign's been done. Jesus is acting like a prophet of the Old Testament in this moment. He's coming in as the only one who has the right to speak about right and pure worship to his people. He comes in as the only one who can 
overturn the tables and drastically upheave all of the false worship that had been going on. So Jesus' answer, destroy this temple, and three days I will raise it up. Oh, Jesus has taken 46 years. You're hilarious. It's not going to happen. You cannot expect us, first of all, to destroy our temple. The temple is what is so important for us. It's our high moment of worship. It is, if, what, is, what is Passover without the temple? What is prayer without the temple? Even those who would pray far, miles and miles away from the temple, just knowing that the temple was there, knowing that they had a, a symbol of God's presence, his willingness to meet them was essential to their worship. Well, we know because John lets us in on the subtext here. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build the temple. Will you raise it up in three days? John says he was speaking about the temple of his body because the physical temple, the structure, was only a picture, a representation of the one who was going to come. Do you remember in the end of John chapter 1 when Jesus is talking to Nathanael? And Nathanael says, wow, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And he says, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? I mean, you ain't seen nothing yet. You will see greater things than these. I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, appealing to the vision that Jacob had generations before, that God would create a place where God and man could meet. And now in Christ, the temple is fulfilled in a person. He is the place where we meet God, the only place that we are able to meet God because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are able to meet with God in pure worship because that word also was the one who was crucified in our place, given as a sacrifice so that we might become the righteousness of God. We can enter into relationship with he who is the temple. Well, the the word that he gives them about destroying the temple. He says, you destroy the temple, by the way. That ends up becoming an accusation for him later on in Matthew 26. You can read about that if you're curious later on. Uh, but because of the misunderstanding that they had, so deep. It's a terrible misunderstanding of what Jesus was talking about. In one sense, you can't blame him. Apparently, he didn't give the explanation. But again, they were all about the temple, which was all about Jesus. But they weren't all about Jesus, like they ought to have been like those who truly understood the temple rightly, would have seen the one turning the temple tables over and speaking in such a way and giving these great signs to truly be the Son of God and the rightful King of Israel. He was speaking of the temple of his body. Christ, in his authoritative act of cleansing our hearts, as he did in the temple, grants his spirit to us so that we might be able to worship in spirit and truth, so that we can be zealous for pure worship just as he is. So that when it comes to the point of dealing with the, the issue of worship in our hearts, we, can't, we don't have to come in fear. We don't have to come to, to the Lord knowing that we need to confess and fearing that he's going to squash us for it. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And this matter of worship is supremely important. You know, on a normal Sunday, I try to pray for us that that our distractions, our worries, our cares, and our concerns, that we would be able to just set them aside, even if just for a moment, even if we only come back to just pick them right back up again and move on the way we were before. I try to make that a priority in my own heart 
that I would set aside my own concerns for, you know, is, is the furnace going to work today? Um, is my iPad battery going to die in the middle of the sermon? You know, all those silly things. But then all those serious things, the things that you really worry and care about, things that really take your attention, and you say, I'm worried about this person, I'm worried about this situation, this relationship, this situation at work. If we can get to a point where we can embrace what Christ wants to do in our hearts in purifying us for worship, we'll not only find what we were created for in the first place, but we will find the faith and the hope and the power to face the rest of the things that we face as we come out of this building symbolically going back into the world, right? Back to the real world as, as much of the world would probably accuse us of thinking. This is what Jesus accomplishes at the cross for us so that we can have this pure worship, so that we can have access to him who knows all of our concerns, who knows that those preferences and those, those uh, comforts and those desires come from something, and he wants to satisfy the deeper need in him rather than other things. He comes to purify the temple, comes from his father, that same authority that John 10, 14 through 18, he talks about being the good shepherd and he has authority to lay his life down and to take it up again. That is the authority. That is the sign that he's talking about. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. The sign of purifying the temple reveals his authority and his work at the cross is not just a sign to verify what he did before, but it is the substance and the true act of God in this need for salvation that we have. Christ will take the reproach of his own sheep against their shepherd. His zeal will truly consume him. The disciples remembered that verse when they saw him do this and they would have, I'm sure, remembered it yet again after he had been arrested and as he was being crucified, this is the result of someone who is zealous for pure worship. And for us, we might face that persecution someday, but we most certainly today face the challenge of our own flesh rising up against us in our desire for pure worship, trying to crowd it out. And yet in looking to him, we find every reason to believe that what he is doing, even in overturning things that are established in our lives, he's doing it out of love. He's doing it out of a heart that desires us to be in right relationship with him. Listen to this quote from uh, Dane Ortland in the book Gentle and Lowly. He says, Christ got angry and still gets angry, for he is the perfect human who loves too much to remain indifferent. This righteous anger reflects his heart, reflects his tender compassion. But because his deepest heart is tender compassion, he's the quickest to get angry and feels anger most furiously and all without a hint of sin tainting his anger. Jesus became the sacrifice for our impure worship, for our crowded worship. And he did this motivated by the purity of his father's house and the desire to fill his father's house with his people, with his worshipers. And he shows that zeal ultimately at the cross. Well, the disciples end up believing the scripture and his word. I love in verse 22, it says that he was, let's see, when therefore he was raised from the dead, he, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's kind of cool putting those two things together because they really carry the same authority. This book that you're looking at, this Bible is the word of God. 
and Christ is called the word of God in the beginning of the book of John. There is no shortage of evidences for the authority he has over all of creation and in this moment right now in our moment of self-examination over our own lives. So pure worship is possible for his people. And he is calling us to be zealous like him in that pure worship, following the one who has prepared us for worship. We too have to lay down our lives in worship for his sake. It may not be physically today. It might not be that somebody gives you an ultimatum and says, hey, it's either your life or, or you're denouncing Christ. But again, we do face this internal battle of our own preferences versus the Savior who has died for us. Because he's with us, worship encompasses all of life, not just the high point of Sunday mornings, as special as this time can be. And if the cleansing of the temple did happen more than once, if, if this mentioning at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the mentions in the other Gospels at, towards the end of his ministry show two different instances, or if it's the same instance, it doesn't really matter, but it does tell us that this is not necessarily a one-time thing that we need to do, right? That like today I'm not just going to clear out the temple of my heart, the tables of my heart will be knocked over and everything will be fine and I'll never mess up again. Christ is with us and continually bringing us that conviction to lead us to confession so that we can be led into conquering our sin as we talked about during Lent. Christ is with us in that process. He wants to deal with the unknown in our hearts and the hidden things in our hearts as well. He's going to turn the tables over in our hearts. That's what he does with his people as an act of his love, of his kindness. And I want to share with you just a, a page from the Chronicles of Narnia again. Because it's such a good series. If you haven't read it, you really should. It's awesome stuff. Well, this is the horse and his boy, and it's been out for way too long, so spoiler alert, there is uh, no, no reason that I can't share this with you if you haven't read it yet. It's been out for long enough. But anyway, the main character's name is Shasta, and he is on the run with his talking horse friend, and he's on, the, on his way to Narnia to let um, the king and the queen know that an attack is coming. And he's, they're, they're racing hundreds and hundreds of miles to try to get there as fast as they can before everyone. Aslan, the, the Christ picture of the book, the Christ character, um, doesn't actually appear until um, much, much more closely to the end than, than throughout the rest of the book. And uh, so he, Shasta's having a conversation with him about everything that's happened so far. So listen to what he says here. He told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus, his friend and fellow traveler. Also, how very long it was since he had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. This is Aslan speaking. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night and... There was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the house of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. That last one particularly stuck out to me as I was reading this to my four-year-old who has to deal with all my long pauses as I'm contemplating what C.S. Lewis is writing. 
But there was a point where they were on the run and there was this lion chasing them. They didn't know it was a good lion or they didn't know anything about this lion. And it starts attacking the horse and making the horse run faster than it possibly knew it could before. I think that as Christ turns the tables over in our hearts, it's not always easy. It's not always easy to deal with the sin that we have, that we treasure, that we hold so closely. But he wants to do it for our good and for his glory. So what tables are set up in your heart? Tables are set up in our gathering. We are a community of believers. Are there things that we need to deal with together in our worship? Are we ready to clear the court of the Gentiles and welcome in the lost so that they might know the zealous glory of our dear Savior? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word this morning that it is as you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us into pure worship for Jesus' sake, for our joy, that we might know you more and embrace all you have for us. In Christ's name, amen.